Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you who tuned in last week, I gather that my bit of the podcast was recorded in mono accidentally, for which I apologise for. I don't know what, what was going on, but some people love mono recordings. The Beatles were recorded in mono originally. They re-released them all about five years ago. And Paul McCartney says, yeah, a lot of people like the mono. It's great. So I hope you liked the mono last week. No, I'm sorry. It was completely accidental. And I apologise. I don't blame ministers for not apologising when they're asked to apologise persistently at the press conferences as if an apology brings about anything really beyond a sort of embarrassing headline, ministers apologise and then another minister is asked on the state programme, your colleague apologise, will you apologise? And it's all irrelevant. But what is so striking at the moment at this stage of this emergency is the strange gap between ministerial pronouncements and what then appears to be the reality in hospitals and care homes, the press conferences, which is the most exciting moment of my day. I get scanned by half past four. I get really excited because the press conference is only minutes away. And I know they're going to be boring and tedious, and yet I'm drawn to them each day. I keep on thinking about what people, when they are shown in a hundred years' time as an example of one element of this multi-layered crisis, I think people will be fascinated. They are so dated on one level, the presentations of the ministers and the scientists are far too long and don't reveal very much in that length. And there are some weird things, you know, the, whoever the scientist of the day is uh, shows the graphs of, you know, hospital admissions, the number of deaths, that bleak chart. And they kind of, from the very beginning, have been presenting it all in a positive light. The Matt Hancock figure, I'm pleased to say that we're going to be testing 100,000 people a day by the end of the month. And... I've got no doubt they, when they proclaim, they believe it. I don't think it is just a crude piece of propaganda, but they are unused to delivering. I'll come back to that in a minute. And then you have the scientists saying, well, it's all going well with the um, charts. And you can see it's sort of weird. You can see everything going up with the UK following the pattern of Italy, and yet we hear it's all plateauing, it's all, you know, great, to quote Paul McCartney. Yeah, it's great, look at it, it's plateauing, it's really great. And so there is a sort of discordance between these press conferences. The journalists who ask questions have been attacked for asking uh, the wrong questions, but that, that too is not relevant. Uh, it's very difficult. You, you, one of the theses of this podcast is things need room to breathe, and if you really want to challenge and probe, you can't do it in one question and a follow-up, especially when you're on some fuzzy Skype in your bedroom at home. None of it quite works, and yet it's oddly compelling. To come back to that sort of gap between what seems to be happening on the front line, which people still say they haven't got the right kits or they haven't got enough of the right kits and care homes are still struggling. And then we hear, you know, billions of 
bits of kit are going to these places and you know what is the gap and i think the gap is to do with the art of delivery is so complex and challenging and it needs absolute firm centralized grip that doesn't necessarily have to be the prime minister but it could be obviously it can't be at the moment in this case but it has to be a big figure at the center and everything that's happened over the last few years as i mentioned in a podcast a couple of weeks ago has been in the opposite direction fragmentation overlapping agencies with blurred lines of responsibility in the delivery of healthcare under the auspices of the nhs and there are too many disparate groups and agencies involved now. So I'm sure when Matt Hancock or whoever it is announces something, they assume they are close to delivering as they make the announcement. But delivery is very different. And I think the two best ideas I've heard, uh, one from Blair, who said, not in the interview with the podcast last week, but elsewhere, that commissioning the number of kits you need for really effective testing, and testing will be part of the exit strategy, there should be a cabinet minister solely with that responsibility. And then you begin to make the whole machine work for you. And somebody else was um, tweeting today, I can't quite remember who, that that has wider application. A big figure pulling together all the different elements of the whole crisis, health, social care, and other factors too. Is it the case that um, face masks should be worn by people when they go out, as it is in most other countries? And also, this will obviously relate to the so-called exit strategy, where Keir Starmer has been quite clever, I think, in calling for the principles behind the government's strategy, exit strategy. A, because he knows they don't really know what form this strategy will take or when it will take. B, it gives him scope for some criticism by saying, look, the reason I'm asking for this is that we can test the propositions and prepare for them because evidently there wasn't enough preparation done as the virus took hold in February and March in Britain. And so you can sort of slip in a criticism of the past without reflecting on it too much as you focus on the next phase. So I think Starmer's playing this well and effectively because you have the space to be constructive and critical. And it's very important for Starmer to be critical and not slavishly loyal, partly because there's a lot to be critical about, but also from his self-interested point of view, the total support and admiration for what the government is doing in, because it's all part of a collective effort would be totally counterproductive. It's what Ian Duncan Smith did when he became Tory leader and he genuinely backed virtually everything Tony Blair was doing in supporting America towards the war in Iraq. And he had no space for any criticism, not least in relation to Iraq when it all went predictably wrong. So Starmer needs to have the space to criticise now and in the future. But the context of all this is really interesting. Camilla Cavendish, who worked as one of 
David Cameron Senior Advisors in number 10 wrote a really interesting article in the Sunday Times about 18 months ago. I kept it because it was so interesting and counterintuitive in terms of where popular fashionable orthodoxy was. She said that having been involved in the so-called NHS reforms of the coalition era, the reforms that favoured fragmentation rather than centralised coordination, she had concluded, this is years before this bloody virus struck, that this had proven to be calamitous and that actually what the NHS needs to be more effective was very clear lines of accountability and centralised control. And that, it seems to me, applies to the current crisis now. Instead, you have Hancock making pledges and claims and objectives and not wholly sure of the levers that will deliver them. You have Michael Gove coordinating in the Cabinet Office. You have Boris Johnson's advisers, all quite, well, some intimidating and assertive. You have the Treasury with its perspective and all the different agencies responsible for delivery. You keep on hearing anecdotes of firms ready to provide certain bits of kit, whether it's testing or ventilators, and they can't get the commissioning. There's a sort of blockage in the convoluted line of responsibility and that blockage needs unblocking and it needs a big figure. And so whether they'll do that, who knows? Uh, But I think it explains the sort of gap between these complacent press conferences, tonally complacent, and the reality on the ground. There's a lot of talk at the moment and speculation about how politics will change as a result of all of this. And clearly one of the changes will be, I think it will be impossible for a government, certainly this government, to propose very tight spending limits on the NHS again. One of the lessons clearly is that the reason why Germany, one of the reasons why Germany is doing so much better than the UK is they invest more in health provision. And one of the great achievements of that last Labour government was to get NHS spending up to the EU average. It was opposed at the time, the tax rise, which was a big tax rise, was opposed by the Conservatives. You read editorials in the Times newspaper saying it yeah, it doesn't need investment. Reform. That's what we need, reform. I always wanted to speak to the editor of the Times at the time to say, when you improve your second home, do you just reform it or do you spend quite a lot of money refurbishing it? It needed the money and it cannot carry on functioning at this level when other countries, Sweden's another, it's taking a different course, keeping a lot of the economy open and going still. But it has a much more thoroughly functioning health provision, partly because it spends more on it. Not It's not the whole thing. And so there's a lot of talk about, so what will the post-politics of this period be? And what's interesting is that In a way, there was already a shift taking place in 2017 in that bizarre election where Theresa May lost her overall majority. Her manifesto under the influence of Nick Timothy, who I think is an interesting Tory thinker, he's got a book out at the moment, and it's it's worth reading. 
he recognised that the role of the state needed to be revisited and spoke of the good that government can do and the limits of market activity. So even well before this virus, Tory thinking was beginning no longer to see the state as the great problem. Britain took the wrong turning in 79 when, after 10 years at least, of the corporate state proving to be a catastrophe or the corporatist state proving to be a catastrophe. Thatcherism decided the state was bad, small state and all the rest of it, when the question should have been, this clearly isn't working, what might work? And that question wasn't asked in any constructive way. Some in her early cabinet did, Ian Gilmore and people like that had very interesting ideas, but there was no looking at Germany and saying, can we do a bit of that, or Northern Europe? It was, the state is useless, let's cut it. And although she didn't cut in real terms, as Cameron and Osborne and Clegg did, the spending rises were way beyond the growing demand, especially in the NHS, where there was a growing elderly population in the 80s. So there could have been a great constructive debate, could well have been won by the Conservative Party, because the Labour Party was unelectable in the early part of the 80s, but it wasn't had. And then Labour came in, then it all became taboo. Neil Kinnock occasionally talked about the enabling state, but no one noticed, and he wasn't fully sure what he meant by it. Then Labour came in in 97. I already mentioned they then did put NHS spending up to the European level, an epic achievement in a country which had been conditioned to assume that spending was always a waste and tax rises were punitive and could do no good. In fact, the Brown budget, which introduced the tax rise to pay for the spending on the NHS, was one of the most popular recorded by opinion polls. So they did change the assumptions and did considerable or made considerable progress in terms of improving public services. But Blair and Brown, the product of Labour losing the 80s, never really framed a case around what Nick Timothy called the good that government can do. And so the case was lost. I remember Robin Cook telling me that people in his constituency in Scotland thought that the tax credits that were giving them quite a big income boost was a technical adjustment made by the inland revenue because for reasons to do with the 1980s Gordon Brown had never framed the tax credits in a way that showed it was kind of a deliberate act of government policy and that kind of paved the way for the 2010 Cameron coalition which went back to the Thatcherite idea of the state being the problem and his phrase there is such a thing as society but it's not the same as the state sounded like a rebuttal of Thatcher's there's no such thing as society but it was actually a complete endorsement of that particular view. So then the state got battered and bruised and fragmented and underfunded And then I say May came in and was going to, I think, rebalance in quite an interesting way. But we know what happened to her. And then Johnson, even before the virus, was also, I mean, the, the, the Sunak budget was kind of Keynesian in its arguments about the fact that the borrowing would do the economy good in terms of growth and productivity. So things were kind of moving in a 
new direction anyway. But once, if we're out of this in terms of the economic fallout, it will be interesting. The Treasury itself remains very orthodox. It's a sound money department. It will hate the amount of money being borrowed and doled out in this crisis as it did in 2008 in the financial crisis. Rishi Sunak is obviously popular at the moment. Every time he speaks at a press conference, I'm going to give another £150 billion to this and all the rest of it. It's hard to be unpopular when you're giving away a lot of money. But he too, I'm told, is a kind of pro-free market, small state, economic liberal. So whether he reverts to that type, having delivered a Keynesian budget with Keynesian arguments, I don't know. But it's not guaranteed that the politics of the Conservative Party changes significantly as a result of this, given the composition of that party, their determination to end the Brexit trade talks in December, even though no country's in a fit state to do trade deals with the UK, and the EU is wholly focused on the pandemic, as is the UK, but still they want to complete the trade deal by December. So there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, about it, but clearly there is space When people go outside and applaud at eight o'clock on a Thursday evening to thank uh, the health workers and the care workers and so on, it doesn't take much. It takes something because in the mid-1980s, you could have something like Live Aid to express concern about global poverty. And then two years later, Margaret Thatcher won a huge landslide and she was less interested about giving money to overseas aid and all the rest of it. So there can be a complete mismatch between sentimental feeling and then what people do politically in their hunger for lower taxes and all the rest of it. But a clever politician, a Tory leader, could use this to change and reframe their party, or a Labour leader perhaps could do so as well. It would be, obviously, Keir Starmer. He's, as I think he's doing quite well in this crisis. It's difficult for him. He's not the central player by any stretch of the imagination. He can't do anything. He can only say. But he's saying quite smart things to frame an argument. He also got into some difficulty, or it wasn't him, but it, it presents a huge challenge with the leak of that internal Labour report about how the Labour Party was dealing with the anti-Semitism issue under the Corbyn leadership. And the leaked report showed that the Labour Party Corbyn inherited in terms of its HQ uh, were kind of not as big as fans. And it's full of texts from people working there from the General Secretary downwards, utterly loathing the Corbyn takeover totally dismissive of it in language that is pretty vile at times. The reaction has been very interesting. Those, you know, like to mention the Times, all the Times columnists and all the rest of it, are utterly dismissive of the report because they share the loathing of the Corbyn project. These people are as um, angry and militant without realising it as those they loathe on the left of the Labour Party. But the report was leaked, no author was acknowledged, and it represents one side of the picture. And the problem 
of that Labour Party over recent years has been this very public civil war, a mutual loathing. And parties don't win in those circumstances. You know, it's the most fundamental reason. Most voters don't follow politics, but they can tell a dysfunctional party. And if you've got people... I wasn't surprised by the text is what Labour MPs tweeted and spoke privately in relation to the Corbyn takeover, but the left gave back in kind on Twitter and elsewhere. And so the reaction of this report was an echo of all of that. Starmer needs to sort it out completely and indicate that under his Labour Party, it's, it's, it's almost, he can't use that adjective new, but he's got to give the impression of newness, that that loathing of other people within a party means that party can never win. Anyway, I mentioned last week uh, that having done a programme on Labour left out of power for Radio 4, which is on um, BBC Sounds, I would play some of the interviews in full because the programme was compressed. It was 40 minutes when it was going to be three parts. And last week I played the Blair interview, which we did for that programme. And today I thought I'd play uh, the interview we did with Peter Hayne. The reason being, partly, I was interested in speaking to him because I did an interview with him in 1999. That was two years into the Labour government. Blair was still walking on water. The opinion poll ratings were stratospheric. And Hayne then was a junior minister, very ambitious. He got into the cabinet and he wanted to get into the cabinet. And yet he risked saying in this interview that the government risked being disdainful of its core vote, gratuitously offensive to its core vote was how he put it, I think. And that seems to me to have been quite prophetic because although Tony Blair would point out that they continued to win seats in their heartlands with big majorities under him in all three elections, of course, which he won, it seems prophetic in the sense that Haim was evidently picking up something that was to become huge at the election in December for Labour. And he talks very interestingly about how he could see the Labour vote in the Welsh heartlands. He, he was uh, MP for Neath and still lives in that area. He could see the, the vote changing, becoming disillusioned, changing social patterns, changing working patterns. Anyway, he talks about that in the interview, and we didn't have time, obviously, to play all his observations in the programme. So I thought you might like to listen to it. Here it is. This is the Peter Hain interview. Peter Hain, you had been an MP very briefly uh, when Labour lost in 1992, an election where they had high hopes of winning or forming a government in a hung parliament. And I remember as a political journalist after that election, there was talk of Britain becoming like Japan. Uh, the only significance would be the ruling party and what changes within that ruling Tory party. And people were wondering whether Labour would ever win again. How do you recall that mood post-92? I and most party members expected to win the 1992 election, as did most columnists and pollsters, until 10 o'clock on polling day morning, driving around my constituency t to all the polling booths to talk to the electoral officers, 
there was a bulletin on the BBC saying polling in heavy, a bulletin on the BBC saying polling in Sussex is unusually heavy. And I thought, oh, there are not many Labour voters in Sussex that I know of. And that was my first sense that we were going to lose the election. And the reaction to it, including Neil Kinnock's immediate resignation, very principled and dignified, was one of shock. And it triggered a t complete reassessment on the left of the party, the soft left that I have been on, um, about what we should do, and opened the door first to John Smith's uh, election as leader, and then, when he sadly died, to Tony Blair's elevation as leader on a landslide vote. And can you remember what your assessment then was for a route back to power for Labour uh, post-92? I'd always believed you could have a much more radical Labour government, if you like, a more left-wing Labour government, but that one that acted in a responsible way and sought to appeal to as broad a base as possible. I always thought that was politically deliverable. But it did make me rethink. And Neil Kinnock, whom I'd supported, had been on an enormous journey and taken the party forward, away from that debilitating sectarianism of the militant tendency and all the factionalism in the party of the 1980s and the bitter clashes and so on had brought the party into a much more acceptable and, we thought, election-winning state. But it didn't work. And it then followed that the Blairite momentum, if I could call it that, the new Labour momentum, became unstoppable. And it was in shock at the 1992 defeat. But I thought we left behind some of our principles and some of our core values, which we needn't have done to win. That's, did you ever have, in that period, uh, Tony Blair became leader in 94, a conversation with Tony Blair where you had that kind of discussion or was that not possible for you at that time to have that kind of discussion about whether New Labour went a bit too far? I was having that discussion with leading New Labour figures and I wrote a pamphlet uh, saying much uh, of that called What's Left?, published by the Tribune newspaper, which I, uh, I, I chaired its board, uh, raising these kinds of questions. And it seemed really as if it was almost unpatriotic in the Labour Party to do that, because I was known not to be from the sectarian left. And nevertheless, I was cha challenging and questioning in what I thought was a constructive, supportive way to the leadership, some of the departures from what I thought was a necessary... A strategy that we should be following. Give me an example of a departure from the strategy that you think... It seemed almost from the earliest days of Tony Blair's leadership, enormously successful though it proved to be, and his critics today uh, have a amnesia about his, his sheer winning ability, which I've never had. But it seemed to me that there was a way of almost gratuitously distancing the party leadership and its appeal to the public from Labour's values and its principles and its traditions in a way that made people feel, on the one hand, disorientated and, on the other hand, feeling that the party left them 
And I'm not talking about the sectarian hard left. I'm talking about, if you like, the middle of the party uh, felt that um, they were being left behind. And since because in uh, 1999, you were a minister and ambitious to go much further, which you did. Um, you gave me an interview uh, on the record where you said that the Labour government, miles ahead in the polls at the time, risked being gratuitously offensive to its core vote. Um, and I was surprised you said that on the record. What, what did you mean by that? Um, because obviously it has huge echoes with what has happened since. Well, what I meant at the time, and I got a real ticking off by the leadership for giving that interview to you, uh, what I meant was really a continuation of what I'd been saying since the mid-90s, uh, except it became more marked. I was an MP uh, for a quarter of a century, and at that time, obviously, as well, for Neath, which was a traditional mining constituency, a rock-solid Labour heartland, uh, where Labour was just in your DNA. The party was a loyal party to whoever the leader was, but I could feel the base stirring in anxiously. And I remember discussing this with Peter Mandelson at the time, and he said to me, but they've got nowhere else to go. And I replied, but they do, Peter, they'll stay at home. And that's what happened in Neath as a case study, a heartland vote. In 1997, I had the biggest majority ever for Labour in Neath. It was nearly 27,000 majority. Over the years, that declined, and it declined basically because of a declining turnout of voters on block, and that meant Labour voters just staying at home. So they did have somewhere else to go, and it was to prove, in my view, catastrophic for Labour's future and the crisis to follow. And did you, you mentioned you had a conversation with Peter Manson. Did you at some point have that conversation with Tony Blair? I did, and it was polite, and it was... Uh, Tony was always somebody who would listen to you. I'm not sure he was... He was certainly not persuaded, but he would have a, a conversation. Gordon Brown, whom I worked very closely with, and who I admire equally uh, enormously, it was much more difficult to have that conversation because Gordon tended not to uh, want to uh, have a conversation with somebody who was disagreeing with him or challenging him. That was just his, his makeup. Uh, Tony Blair was much more open to that, but he took no notice, frankly, at all. In, in analysing what has happened since... Uh, you clearly identified some of the seeds in that early period. How significant do you place Iraq in the narrative that has led to what began, I suppose, as a loss of trust in some of the core vote areas and then fundamental loss of support? Iraq was critically important for New Labour and critically damaging for Tony Blair's leadership and his reputation. But it was mainly so amongst middle-class areas. There was a lot of sympathy in Neath amongst the ordinary Labour voter and citizen for Tony Blair's leadership on Iraq. And, of course, there were lots of families who had sons serving in the armed forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was a, a sense of identity 
with those uh, people and those brave soldiers. But in Labour's membership, and that seeped more widely out into the community at large, it was catastrophic. There's no question about it. Now, I was in the cabinet and I backed Tony Blair's uh, recommendation because I believed, quite honestly, believed, as every, most people did at the time, the um, the intelligence that said Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, which proved to be completely false subsequently. So we went to war on a lie, frankly. And Tony Blair and New Labour didn't really recover from that, except that, of course, we won the 2005 election. So I think Iraq was important, but not as important um, for Labour's heartland mm -hmm. vote as it was more broadly. Perhaps you point to a big dilemma for Labour now and then, in that perhaps the heartlands and the sort of middle England, in inverted commas, vote are almost in two irreconcilable places. The heartlands were relaxed about Iraq and understood it. The middle classes, as you say, never forgave New Labour for it. Uh, Brexit, the middle classes, passionate Remainers, the heartlands, including in Wales. In Neath as well. In Neath as well, passionate Brexiteers. How the heck does a party bring that lot together? It's a big challenge. And... Uh... I think in the recent Labour leadership election, only Lisa Nandy's really been addressing that challenge or attempting to do so. It goes back to something I felt and, and spoke about and wrote about at the time was happening in my constituency, which is, as it were, the, the sand moving under our feet, our base dissolving under our feet, because the Labour base and the Labour coalition between middle-class radicals and working-class voters had been built around the trade union movement, around uh, working people's clubs and uh, social welfare organisations. That was the crucible of the Labour Party in the, early in the early 20th century. And you could feel in Neath the, the rock-solid nature of that, when I got selected in 1990, half my general committee was trade union representatives, genuine trade union representatives. I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean miners and shop work, uh, car workers and so on. Um, that's no longer the case in the Neath Labour Party. So you had that umbilical connection between the party to its voters through the trade unions and the social and welfare clubs and the sense of community. So, that, for example, in the, the former pit village that I lived in Neath of Resolven, you could go to a rugby club in those early years in the 1990s, go into the lounge bar on a Saturday night, and it would be packed. It was almost as if the whole village was there. Um, and you go there to, today... And there's maybe an old gent at the lounge bar, and the pool bar's got half a dozen youngsters uh, playing pool, and that's it. And isn't that, isn't there a danger that that it becomes a metaphor for the Labour Party? Um, here it is, fourth in Scotland, where it was usually the equivalent of being a packed-out bar winning elections with its eyes closed almost, uh, slaughtered in the whole of the UK in the December general election. And does that not suggest that the Labour Party needs almost a reinvention to meet the changing 
behavioural attitudes, working patterns of Neath, the north of England and Scotland and elsewhere? Yes, it does. We had a unique series of converging and damaging factors in December last year. We had a leadership and a leader who was deeply unpopular in these heartland areas, deeply unpopular. And uh, that that sort of destabilised the whole of Labour's base vote. Then there was Brexit, which was a torpedo through uh, politics generally, just as Trump had been. I put Brexit and Trump in the same category as I do the populist revolt across Europe, partly a revolt against austerity and the banking crisis of 2008-9, and the way that neoliberal economics globally has, has damaged the middle. It's not just those who are poor who have fallen behind in this period, these last few decades. It's actually the middle, the working class and middle class middle that has had its living standards either frozen or falling behind. And that creates particularly destabilizing factors. And I think a combination of all of these did for us in an entirely predictable way. I mean, I was always astonished that people were astonished that we did so badly in the last election because I could feel it on the doorstep. Can you give us an example of a conversation you've had at any point in this period with uh, one of your constituents where you thought, hmm, that tells me something significant, that we are, we are losing a connection with these people? I don't know if you could conjure, conjure up this theme with a genuine conversation you can remember having with a constituent where, like you said, you were listening to the radio and high turnout in Sussex in 92. Is there an equivalent conversation in Neath? There's a great image of the uh, sports club now empty on a Saturday night when it was packed. Is there a conversation with a constituent who was, you know, I don't know, committed Labour and saying to you at some point, you know, Peter, I'm having my doubts about this party or... I had countless conversations shopping in Neath Town Centre during the last few years with people who said to me with a look of pain on their faces, what has happened to our party? What is... It was as if their own um, beings had been sort of disturbed in some uh, fundamental way, that their own sense of identity and personality and their allegiance to the party... Uh, which was lifelong and went back to their parents and their grandparents, and often those were minors, uh, that, that they just felt the party had left them. And it was a sense of pain and also grief and anger as well, a combined thing. Now, I couldn't have predicted that uh, they would have necessarily gone for Brexit, or although it was clear to me on the doorstep, leading the, the Labour campaign in Wales, as I was asked to do, that we were... There were lots of people saying, Peter, I respect you, as I was a former Secretary of State for Wales. Um, they'd recognised me, but I just cannot back um, you on this. I've got to go for Brexit. And did you get a sense, because I know you still live in the area, that some of your voters voted Conservative this time? They didn't just stay at home, as you began to observe in the New Labour era, in December 29, they switched to the Conservatives, people that you knew who had voted Labour. There's no question that they did. And uh, some of them won't admit it, and some of them didn't tell me they were going to, but it's quite clear that they did. Uh, in 
quite disturbingly large numbers. I mean, the Conservatives rocketed up to levels unsurpassed in modern politics in Neath. And of course, elsewhere in um, Britain, in similar constituencies, the, the Tories won. There's only a residual Welsh Labour solidarity and identification and loyalty to times gone past that kept seats like Neath um, uh, Labour. Now, you, you mentioned post-92, you wrote a, 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 a Tribune-based pamphlet and lots of articles and gave lots of uh, speeches you did, Robin Cook did, and some others about how, what Labour should do next. You, you acknowledged it needs fundamental reform to get back the Neath voter whilst not losing the middle-class Remainer. What? what? What's the equivalent of the Peter Hayne mid-90s prescription now? What Have you given much thought to what Labour should be? Don't mention Lisa Nandy if that's the case, because it might come out post post that but but in terms of ideas and policy first of all any winning leadership has to begin with a keynesian anti-austerity economic agenda to challenge neoliberalism this should have been happening for decades frankly mm. and new labor didn't do that and i think in that sense was the uh, partly responsible for corbynism and our ultimate defeat in last december and I think that's true right across Europe. And it was true of Hillary Clinton facing Donald Trump. The parties of the left and the center left did not offer an alternative to neoliberalism. And until you do, which is essentially a modernized Keynesianism for the globalization era, you're not gonna win again. And you're not gonna rescue the left, parliamentary left again. So that's fundamental. But then I think it's important as well that the middle class dominated politics of parties like Labour, which is very focused on um, lifestyle issues that are crucial to me, whether it's anti-racism or gender equality, uh, issues like gay marriage and so on. Those are things I'm absolutely passionately for. But in a way, it looked as if we were only concerned about those things. So, on the one hand, um, you need a modern Keynesian, uh, public investment-driven, growth-driven economic agenda that gives some hope to working-class communities. Isn't that what John MacDonald was offering in December and Labour got slaughtered? That was the one part of the Corbyn-MacDonald agenda that I enthusiastically applauded. But then it was encumbered with a lot of extraneous damaging baggage like renationalizing electricity and water to be perfectly frank if you're going to spend hundreds of billions of pounds doing that sort of thing raising the money by raising public borrowing and paying private shareholders billions and billions you should be spending that money building houses and building infrastructure and getting the best um, fiber uh, IT based uh, digital system in the world. You shouldn't be buying off private shareholders with that kind of money. So I approved strongly of the Keynesianism, and it was a big disappointment to me that Ed Miliband, whom I backed, and Ed Balls, who, uh, who was his chancellor, didn't adopt that agenda. And I think they were, in a sense, also responsible for Jeremy Corbyn's uh, victory as Labour leader and in that sense, our subsequent heavy defeat. 
Um, I, th I think it's important when people talk about Corbynism, they tend to project it as entirely a kind of hard left sect. Now, there's that element to it, uh, which is very um, damaging and unattractive. But there were lots of genuine middle-of-the-road people, including friends and relatives of mine, who were just so fed up with the managerial um, triangulation of finding sort of uh, the least, the point which you gave least offence to, to everybody rather than a, a strong agenda where you could mobilise a majority around under Millibandism and under Brown Blairism, that that's why they went for. And I had lots of conversations with perfectly middle ground Labour members and said, well, do you think Jeremy Corbyn can win? Oh, no. And this is talking about 2015, not, you know, mm -hmm. recently. Oh, no, we don't think he can win. So I said, you're voting for a, lead a leader who can't win. Yes, uh, because we're just fed up. And we want some real values in the party. And that goes back to what I told you in 1999. And by the way, just to give you a snapshot of who some of these people were, one was a retired managing director of an international management consultancy who spent part of his life over the Atlantic between New York and London. Another was a retired political editor, broadcaster. A, th a third was a miner who detested Scargill but was loyal in the big strike. Uh, and the fourth was a professor of social work who'd got an OBE. So these were not kind of ranting Trotskyites. And they were all enthused by Jeremy Corbyn and assumed he would lose. Yes. Thank you very much. That was Peter Hayne reflecting on the challenges for Labour in the years ahead. Anyway, I hope you're all kind of keeping well during this period. The Rock and Roll Politics live show at King's Place was meant to be on April the 27th. We're looking at doing a virtual show that evening. I'll let you know more about it next week if it happens. I'm not quite sure about the logistics, but technical geniuses are looking into it, and we'll see if we can pull that off. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Hopefully, as I say, there will be some virtual live shows in this surreal period. Keep well. Thanks very much for listening. Listener.